This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Paul Oldham, CFO of Advanced Energy, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 646. A lot of times CFOs do tend to look at capital as cash. Uh, I'm one of those CFOs who look at people as a huge asset. Um, I also look after the people function at Bluecore. And I think the people strategy, especially coming through environments like COVID, is going to be extremely important of ensuring to retain, hire the right talent. And especially of looking at remote, what is the, the new office environment look like? It's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Michelle McComb, CFO of BlueCore, serving the enterprise retail marketing space today with its digital offerings. What is our compensation philosophy? Are we competitive? Are we a merit-based company? On today's show, CFO Michelle McComb raises these questions to highlight what has increasingly drawn her to the intersection of finance and talent, a place she believes finance must occupy. Today, having already fully sanctioned the notion that Blue Corps succeeds when its people succeed. Our talk with CFO Michelle McComb begins after this. In a world that's always changing, one thing never does. Your need to adapt. Your need to evolve. Your need to grow. That's why we built Workday, a single finance, HR, and planning system that can change as your needs change and evolve as the world evolves. To learn how Workday is helping mid-sized organizations embrace the future with confidence, Visit us at Workday.com. Hi, we're speaking with Michelle McComb, CFO of Blue Core. Michelle, welcome. Thank you, Jack. I'm excited to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Uh, as you may know or may not know, we always begin uh, by asking our guests to look back for us. We don't think there's any one path to the CFO office, so it's always helpful to uh, have someone share a little bit about how the road they found, the road they came on. Looking back now, what would you share with us? Sure. Um, would love to kind of stroll back down memory lane. Uh, and I've been pretty fortunate in my career history that, um, one, I think it's been pretty non traditional. I've been given a lot of uh, opportunity. Um, and like a lot of folks who start out in an accounting and finance role, I did start out in what was the, the big six. Um, so Ernst & Young out in Silicon Valley. Some of the things that I think um, set me up for my finance leadership uh, role are all the experiences that I got to uh, have the opportunity to enjoy. But a couple of notable ones, Jack, that I'll share with you is um, 
probably early in my career, uh, I was CFO of a small startup out in Silicon Valley. I think I was probably like employee number 35. We ended up getting acquired by a publicly traded company. So that was a pretty exciting experience because then I got to be part of being uh, going through an acquisition. And then literally, like shortly after closing that acquisition, we ended up being acquired by another company. Uh, so Lucent acquired the, the company that acquired my original software company. Uh, and with Lucent, here's this big, you know, bohemoth company. I'd never been, uh, even thought in my career at the time, it was early, like, hey, I want to go work for a big company. And I was actually thinking about moving on, going and finding another CFO role out in Silicon Valley uh, in emerging tech. And Lucent, the CFO at Lucent came to me and said, well, what would it, what would it take to keep you uh, at, you know, at Lucent? And I said, you know what? I'd love to do an international role. Uh, so I packed my bags, moved out of California, and I moved to England, where I became essentially what was kind of the technically the the CFO of one of their major divisions. It was called Lucent Worldwide Services, and it I had responsibility for just about everything that was out of the outside the Americas. Um, and what that gave me was tremendous international exposure uh, to live internationally, to deal with international cultures, because I traveled extensively. Um, and so I got to deal with business units, uh, finance folks that were from very diverse backgrounds. And I, I found that unbelievably rewarding. Um, another experience was not that long ago in my career where I went to a company called Datto. It's located 15 minutes from my house uh, and I was their CFO. I came in thinking, okay, I'm, I'm the CFO finance accounting and pretty quickly on the CEO who happened to be, this was his early career. Uh, he entrepreneur had never really worked elsewhere. Um, he had established this this pretty successful company right out of the gates early in his career. Um, but we ran into, you know, uh, getting our arms around things like scaling tech, tech support um, facilities. We built units. So there was assembly. Uh, and so he came to me and basically said, hey, Michelle, will you, uh, will you help me take on these additional responsibilities? So beyond uh, the traditional accounting and finance, I ended up with tech support for a while, I had the assembly function, I had facilities and IT. Um, I ended up with running the people function. So a lot of different things that may not have been in my traditional wheelhouse. Uh, and what that gave me was a deep understanding of the business, not just understanding all the financial aspects, but understanding like what our customer issues are from tech support on the people side, how are we going to motivate and retain and acquire new talent? Um, and then facilities and, uh, and assembly, like putting, putting pieces together. I don't know, in, at Ernst & Young, they didn't teach me how to assemble units. Uh, but so it definitely made me a, a, a pretty diverse uh, finance leader. And then lastly, I would just add that no matter where I've been, um, but, but certainly more recently in my career, um, has definitely pointed towards the relationship with the CEO. Uh, and that, that's been something that as I've come through my career journey, 
that that is one of the most important elements that I will look towards is, uh, is this someone that has my back and I have his or hers, whoever I report to? Um, do we share the same values in the company? Do we have, do, is the culture aligned with how I want to operate um, as not just a CFO leader, but also for my own um, personal values? And if those are misaligned, uh, either with a relationship, with the values or the culture, um, it's not going to be a successful experience. And so those are, that's something that is certainly, as I've come through my journey, been something that's been uh, pretty important to me uh, and something that I've learned along the way. Does that give you some color, Jack? Wow. Well, I, I'd have to say fr from the start, you've done your part to reveal how finance careers are, can be exciting. I mean, you really got off to a running start. I mean, you were at E&Y, but you stepped into a CFO role very quickly. And as you described, it got acquired and it actually opened the door to this next great adventure uh, where you find yourself moving overseas. So uh, just kind of a, a wonderful, adventurous uh, uh, career from the start, I would think. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong. Were you uh, out of the country for beyond two years or how, how long was your, your jaunt abroad? Yeah, yeah, I did kind of jump right into things, Jack, out of my kind of E&Y background. But yes, I was, uh, I lived in England for just about five years. Um, so I really got to live and experience it in more than a surface kind of capacity. I'm also very fortunate that I met my husband there. So I have a Scottish husband and, uh, and two amazing stepsons. So not only did I get to grow professionally, I got to grow personally. Excellent. And you come back and you're now in the tri-state area of New York. So I think we have the three geographies, England, tri-state area, New York, Silicon Valley. If we were to sort of chart your career's geo footprint, let's say, is that fair? Yeah, that's definitely fair. And I, um, you know, I, I hadn't really expected in my career to live uh, out east or actually even internationally, but um, opportunities as, as they arose gave me the chance to, to move both international, as I mentioned, and out east here. And believe it or not, I've been out east about 17 years now. Now, uh, just curious, as far as the companies you joined along the way, were you establishing processes? Were you making key hires? Were you raising funds? Uh, was there an opportunity to take any of these companies public or was it usually an acquisition? So, um, you know, it, it's all the different uh, career opportunities I've had, had have had some slightly different, um, we'll just call them personalities, objectives, et cetera. And I do think, you know, just on the topic of, you know, taking something public, I think if you are on a path to go public, you're also on a path, it's a dual path to be acquired. So I'll just, I'll use a great example because uh, like Datto, um, Datto was definitely heading down the path of, um, you know, going public, had uh, shown uh, all the right signs for a public company growth, you know, profitability, et cetera, and, um, and had some really good investors and so forth. And on that journey, the opportunity came to be acquired. So Vista acquired a private equity company acquired Datto, um, you know, and that and that that journey is fine. Um, and I think you have to be open to wherever uh, that path may lead. I have not personally taken a company public. I think that might be something I'd like to 
you know, maybe put that on my bucket list if so, you know, desired. I don't know, but I, I pretty much enjoy the, the private space that affords you a little more, um, a little more flexibility, let's call it. Uh, but right now, we like to ask you about uh, BlueCore, the company you are now part of. Tell us about BlueCore. What does this company do exactly, and, and what are its offerings? Yeah, so BlueCore sits in the enterprise retail marketing space. So we're a technology platform. If you think about it, we're really focused on online commerce for your, your large enterprise retailers. The likes of you take a Nike and Under Armour, um, the Gap brands, things like that. Um, and if you think about special sauce in a company, so what makes us special? Because in uh, marketing technology and in this space, it can be a crowded space. Uh, but BlueCore does have a couple of what I think are kind of special or unique features. One of them being on the, the technology side, we have a predictive, personalized, um, way that we go about directing our customer email marketing. Um, if you, so if you're an online shopper uh, and you probably get a lot of emails from the, the companies that you buy from, I don't know about you, but me, I get a lot. And sometimes I'm like, these are too many emails. But what BlueCore does is it's very personalized. It's not spam you with a whole bunch of emails and hope that you buy. So a lot of competitors do that. There's kind of a volume play that the more emails we'll send you, you know, eventually you're going to click on one of them and buy. Uh, that is not how BlueCore works. We want to be very targeted. We do not want to have customers our customers then spamming their customers should be what they're interested in and also predictive around hey here's what we think you would be interested in by based on your other buying behaviors uh, and the other thing that i think is quite unique to um, blue core is their commercial pricing model i mentioned that competitors that i'm sure you've seen all those volumes of emails come flying in and you're like why did i get this email um, so for them, they're based on volume of emails. The more emails you send, the more they get paid. That is not how BlueCore works. We are around what's called click-through rate. So the, the, the key to us is we make revenue when the customer makes revenue. It's not about email volume. It's about actually people taking, or customer, cons their consumers taking an action on the email. So the more isn't necessarily better. It's the quality is actually better. So if, if our customers are doing well, that means we'll do well and we're aligned with their goals. As a finance person, I like that. So tell us about a little about your arrival and maybe what was, uh, did you uh, have an idea of reorganizing finance when you arrive or t tell us a little bit about your arrival? Sure. Um, so interestingly, Jack, I arrived in right in the kind of midst of, of COVID. Uh, I had uh, literally COVID hit in March. I joined in April. So I've been one of those entirely remote onboarded uh, new CFOs. Um, I'm also the first CFO that Blue Corps uh, had. Um, they had an excellent uh, head of finance previously and has done an excellent job of, of really helping the company grow and scale. So when I came in, and I'll, I'll say this, uh, uh, as I've gone through my career journey, I don't bring 
some, you know, like cookie cutter, this is how things need to be done. These are, I got to bring my entourage of people that I trust uh, along the way. What I like to do is come in, see what I've got, see what the company's like, what's their culture, what are the people like, what's their experience, how are they structured, what's missing, do I have you know, the systems and technology uh, that I need and so forth. Um, what I will say on a structural front, I do have, I have learned a few things uh, in my, my career tenure is um, I don't stack up the entire finance function I do like to have on one, like my right hand happens to be my controller or the person who's really looking after the books and records, the day-to-day, -day, you know, your accounts payable, your accounts receivable, um, what, I, what you would traditionally call traditional finance or traditional accounting. And on my left hand is uh, what I really, what you would refer to as your FP&A your analytics, your you know data analysis side of things. And I really feel having those close to me and working together um, is critical. And so when I looked at Bluecore, um, I have hired a controller uh, more recently, but I have an excellent FP&A, so I'm, I'm feeling really, really good about that. Is there a, a certain uh, way you want to look at this business, though, that perhaps you felt uh, your lines of sight weren't quite uh, as penetrating as you hoped? Is there a certain business dynamic that you're seeking to better expose and measure? What would it be? Yeah, so um, you know, it's, it's it's interesting that you bring that up around you know business dynamics and and measuring things, uh, and. What I, what I would say is like a, a key word here is data. Um, to me, data is, is like essential. And it's not just financial data, it's the traditional financial data that one might think, you know, like we gotta have our revenue information, we gotta have a great GL package and all that type stuff. It goes way beyond that. Um, and, and in this short tenure that I've had at Bluecore, Believe it or not, um, one of the things that I'm really excited about is we dug. I dug in early with my my FP&A team and the engineering team um, to look at our infrastructure costs. And while you're like infrastructure costs, you got to marry that with uh, features, functionality, product. So really understanding what of our fe features, products you know, all the bells and whistles that we have on our infrastructure side, what are they doing to impact infrastructure costs? And so um, our engineering team uh, instrumented a lot of that so that we could under better understand expense drivers on the infrastructure side, and then also understand them at a customer level. So what customer behaviors are working well for us? What customer behaviors need improvement? So uh, a great example would be looking at, at customer performance at a gross margin level that is in a detail that you can actually take real actions that are not necessarily, like this is, we're looking at things around how we instrument our customer success um, organization to bring value to our customers quicker, better, help them generate more revenue that will then also help us um, as well. Does that give you some color, Jack? I have to start asking uh, more routinely about receivables. I know it's part of every uh, CFO's life, but in the current environment, uh, clearly there's a lot more attention being given to it. Uh, 
tell us about uh, your take on claims and receivables and yeah for sure and look you know um covid definitely put i, I think highlighted excellent cash management like you got to have your eyes on cash collections accounts receivables how is your customers performing what's happening in that world um so it is something that i focus on heavily and the other thing that i would just say on the collection side is um if you're not noisy you're not going to get paid. It, it, people need to be noisy to get paid, especially in these times where, you know, people are conserving cash. So uh, I, during my short tenure too, I've instrumented some um, definite, like some cash uh, awareness and cash management so that salespeople can uh, real time see what's uh, outstanding with their own customers. They don't have to come to finance. We have that in a dashboard that's available to them. So that if they're looking at renewals, upsells, if their customers in trouble, because we've seen some bankruptcies uh, come to light during these uh, challenging economic times, salespeople, customer success, they have visibility of that. Also, with respect to my finance team, we have better visibility of how customers are performing, um, and we've used some technology that's been emerging one called Rivet Labs that uh, has, has shown to be extraordinarily useful in forecasting our cash management and what's happening, what's happening in our customer base. And I'm pretty excited to see where that goes. But cash management, I'm just going to say this, cash is king and queen and, uh, and a big focus for us. And I'm sure other CFOs. You, you've touched on COVID. Uh, a number of times for us, but I'm wondering as you look forward, uh, what are the types of developments or economic indicators uh, that you're keeping an eye on as we move forward, as you try to, uh, you know, predict where your business might head? Yeah, you, you know, um, I guess we're we're in one of those spaces that folks might say, you know, I mentioned we're in enterprise retail. Um, it was hit pretty hard as as COVID, you know, the brick and mortar businesses were closed. You couldn't shop in malls or, uh, you know, as you walk down the high street. Um, but what it did do is it, pu it pushed heavily to the digital online shopping. And so in a lot of ways, things, situation like COVID pushed for things that were happening anyway, but were just, they were happening slower. Uh, and so I think this transformation to um, digital businesses has been pretty critical. So for us, it's watching those those signals around how um, our customers are leaning into this new online digital world and away from the the former uh, brick and mortar mannequin type uh, of shopping experiences. I think the other thing is just to kind of step back. Um, you know, we talk about well, we're in COVID. It's not clear where things are going, but I think companies have to survive. So it's about now, what do you have to do to survive? What's the new way of operating? So like if you take a real estate market before, it was all big open spaces. You know, you like those collaboration spaces. Now with COVID, it's highly likely that it's gonna be smaller, um, single type offices. So you can be a little bit more can contained. And I think that's the key is, okay, what does the pivot mean? pivot quickly, make decisions, move fast. I think for economic, if you look at what some of the things that might be um, helpful is it, it's uncertain time. So you don't know when there's gonna be, you know, a vaccine or a cure. So you gotta make sure that you're like, okay, how are we gonna make it through this, this latest challenge? 
One of the interesting discussions, I think, taking place out there in the business realm today and the digital uh, retail realm today is around TikTok. And I know uh, the fate of it is still uh, yet to be determined, I think. But uh, the whole discussion around whether uh, Walmart would be a good match for TikTok forced me to because at first I was like how how would that why would that be I you know it's kind of strange but then of course on a closer examination or study oh I get it um, you know social media uh, brings in consumers as well but uh, it, I have to believe that's a discussion that you've been part of uh, lately yeah you know it's it, it's it's interesting that you bring that up because it is something that we've been talking about as um, an executive team at, at you know, Blue Core and whether you want to include this or not, but like, you know, just to, to kind of continue the conversation a little bit is um, how about commerce anywhere, right? Because, um, you know, you're, you, there's a society now that is very much social media. You, you refer to TikTok. My daughter uses TikTok. I'll tell you what. She looks at TikTok, she sees what people are wearing, what people are doing. Like there's a lot of kind of product placement type stuff. You look at Facebook, you look at Instagram, all those types of things, right? That they're showcasing uh, products. So maybe you're a Lego builder. They're all over Instagram. They're all over TikTok on those kinds of things. So, and if you see it and you're like, wow, that is super cool. What if at that moment, let's use, you know, like I could click on it and buy it right then. Like I want to buy that Lego build. Um, I don't want to then have to jump to my, you know, Chrome, whatever, and then log on to some, you know, Amazon or whatever. Instead, I just, so to me, it's about consumer anywhere. And I, I also think it's personalized consumer anywhere because you may like to buy things in a very different way that I want to buy from. So it's not necessarily surprising. I mean, Walmart, I don't know, maybe it's trying to be that next, you know, that next generation um, commerce. Uh, but I do think these social media platforms are driving a different generation of consumer behaviors. So uh, an attractive generation, no doubt, because it's up and coming consumers who are going to evolve over time. So thank you uh, for uh, sharing that reflection. Very interesting. Uh, speaking of generations, I want to touch on talent with you and uh, the role finance leaders play in their organizations um, and how that might be changing and how uh, finance leaders uh, are beginning to look at the investment behind how finance leaders are really looking at that human capital asset, um, beginning to study it a little more closely, perhaps. When I joined Blue Corps, I came in as CFO, took the finance and accounting function. Then FIS asked if I could take the legal function, and I picked up um, the security function as well. And a lot of CFOs end up, you know, picking up also the people function, depending on. Um, size, culture, you name those kinds of things. Um, I love marrying the finance function and the people function 
for a lot of reasons, but they may not necessarily be obvious because I think a lot of times people think, oh, finance, they're going to be gatekeepers. Like we're not going to be able to hire people. We're not going to be able to pay them. That's not how I look at things. This, the people are such a huge asset that a lot of finance leaders don't focus on. So it is understanding people initiatives, people strategy, um, you know, are we hiring the right people? Are we retaining them in the right way? So I did recently pick up the people function at Bluecore and I have managed the people function uh, in my career history. Um, I love it because a lot of times, well, if you think about both functions, we are supporting the entire organization. And so I like being able to have these, let's call them, you know, organizational support uh, work together uh, and, and be more unified. So when you ask me about the people function, um, I am putting together people strategy, especially in light of, not just in light of COVID, but just because I joined Blue Corps and I, I think that it is a huge element to a company's success is around the people that they hire, retain, how they motivate them, how, how like we've got initiatives, like diversity, equality, inclusion, and belonging is a huge thing in light of the, let's just call it the political, social, economic situation transpire, transpiring right now. Um, I'm very passionate about those types of things. And so I love to lean into that and how better by uh, helping to lead the function uh, through things, through those types of challenges. What I'm wondering is, is what are you asking? What do you need to see? You want to know where there's turnover maybe in your organization or where the hires aren't working out for one reason or, or another, or where we're, we're not compensating these people correctly, maybe, or there, there's got to be a better way. These people deserve to earn more over here. We might be. For, first and foremost, I kind of work from philosophies. Like, what is our compensation philosophy? You know, are we competitive? So meaning, do we pay, if I look at similar companies, are we paying employees fairly and competitively? Um, also, like, are we a merit-based company such that, like, if you excel, you can, you're going to consider, like, you, you know you're going to be compensated. And by the way, if you're mediocre, then you're not. Um, so there's, there's what I would like to say is establishing those fundamental philosophies. So one of my other kind of just how Michelle operates uh, and, and my people in finance team at Blue Corps know this. Um, I'm one of those people that operate that I, you can count on me treating you fairly, equitably, and consistently. So if I have employees that, um, you know, if you come to me and uh, let's just variable comp is a great is a, is a, is a good one of um, let's say you have a bonus plan for employees that is entirely dependent on how you perform it for the quarter. If you leave before the quarter ends, uh, you've got to stay to like the quarter hasn't finished. So I'm one of those people though, that if you stayed, you saw us through the quarter, absolutely. I'll take care of you. But I'm not going to treat people differently just because of like one way or the other. You need to know that I'm going to treat you 
just like I would treat anybody else who came through this. And I think that's super important because I want to be treated fairly. I want to be treated equitably. Uh, and I don't think it's like facts and circumstances. I do think there's exceptions, don't get me wrong. But I think the underlying piece needs to be that, that you can tell, you know, I can look an employee in the eye and say, I treated you fairly. We are uh, going to ask for a finance strategic moment. And I, I think you might have already shared a few of these with us, uh, Michelle. Uh, but this is where we ask you to single out just one and illustrate it for us. Take us back in time and share with us an experience where you believe your, your lines of sight in the organization, your lines of sight as a finance leader allowed you to see something and respond to it. What comes to mind? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one that's been like, it's just an overall strategic moment for me. Um, as a finance professional, I'm going to tell you, uh, we don't like surprises in our financials. And we also don't like errors, obviously. Um, and so here's my, my moment is uh, there was a, we all do forecasting and budgeting. So had done our forecasting and budgeting uh, at, a, at a company I was at, a very large company with a lot of money at stake. Um, and we had been using a longstanding Excel model to do the revenue forecasting. Um, and it had, you know, fared us seemingly well, like it had worked reasonably accurate. Uh, and so we'd put everything in place and obviously you build these revenue plans and then that also helps inform other investment decisions you want to make uh, down the line. And we had started the new fiscal year and early as the, as the year started, I started to look at um, the budget versus actual variances that were starting to arrive on the revenue side. And I could tell something was wrong um, and market conditions had changed, you know, like that, look, some of the business was still doing well, but the variance in the revenue was not making sense to me. So I, I started to dig into it and found a underlying assumption in this forecasting model that was really wrong, that if things were going well, this was going to be just fine. But if things were not going well, you know, and we've had, uh, look, I've, I've made my career through dot-com, through subprime mortgage-backed securities, the fault like banking situation, now COVID. Um, and so market conditions had changed and it was a very, very sizable um, forecasting error. Uh, there's a couple things in that to mention. One, I personally am not the one generating the Excel model and putting all the inputs in. Um, there's members of my team who do that, right? But as a, a finance executive CFO professional, I'm going to tell you this is the one where I had uh, leaders around me that were looking for who to blame um, so that they could like, you know, put the target on the back. Um, I was to blame. I am the CFO. I am the you know, I am the executive in charge of my team. And uh, the thing I learned very quickly was you need to take responsibility for your team's errors, mistakes, et cetera. On the flip side, you need to give your team credit for the successes and the wins. It's not for you to take, it's for your employees to take. The other thing is that um, I learned in this too, that you cannot take um, 
historical assumptions and let them sit and stagnate. You got to look at things. You got to challenge underlying assumptions. You've got to, uh, it, it, it drove me and my team to do heavy look at revenue models, customer performance, uh, and take a deeper dive in the data side of things. And it taught me also, folks, I've had so many um, people say to me, well, it's directionally accurate. It's never directionally accurate. You've got, you can have one situation where it's going one direction and another situation that's taking the other, and then it might look like the variance is fine when actually it's not fine. Because if those market conditions keep where they push on one wind or the other, uh, and you haven't really dug into those, you're gonna be caught out. And so it taught me to pay attention to the details, not just take it's directionally accurate. Um, and also that like there isn't blame to be had. There's, there's lessons to be learned. So how can we do it differently? We ended up building a whole new model. We ended up using Hyperion, which is fine, but you could use another forecasting tool. And like significantly improved the the business performance and a lot of times it's like no we don't you know that's working just fine you need to look at things and you need to make the right investments so it was i mean it was professionally very challenging of trying to navigate a, a pretty significant error and then also just having to step up as a leader and really own the situation um you know whether that's having to speak to the board or or otherwise but yeah that's my big strategic moment when we return cfo michelle mccomb enters the mentoring round technology adoption business partnership strategic direction resource optimization and honestly scalability right we are past the point in business of throwing people to solve problems like Let's take a five-second pause and RIP to that business strategy, right? <laughs> you can't just throw people to solve problems anymore. Hi, I'm Rowan Tonkin, your host at Being Planful. You just heard from Chris Ortega, a recent guest on the show. If you want to hear from guests like Chris talking about today's trends for tomorrow's FBA leaders, you can subscribe at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're here in the mentoring round with CFO Michelle McComb, where once more we're going to ask you to look back, Michelle. And this time, it was probably that first CFO role you had, but we'll allow you to take us where you like to. Um, we always like to say, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice that first time you took on 
all that leadership responsibility as a finance leader. If you could just go back in time and give yourself some advice that first week, that first quarter, that first six months, what would it be? You know, there's a couple of things, Jack, I would love to uh, go back to my earlier self and tell my, me a couple of things. Um, one of them being that experience matters. You know, I think a, a lot of times we get the pressure of needing to move our career along quickly, um, you know, get that title, whatever that might be. Um, and I will say in the CFO space in particular, your CEO, your board, your investors are relying on you. There's not someone else to go to. Uh, and therefore experience, I am by far a better CFO today than I was those many years ago, because I've had all this amazing experience. Um, and so to that, I would say embrace all the opportunities, all the challenges and change that can be thrown at you so that you can learn as you make your way to that, that seat, that leadership seat. The other thing that I would say is hire people better than yourself and hire them not for what you need today, but for where you're going to go. Because if you hire them for what you need today, it's all, they're, you've already surpassed them. Uh, and hiring people better than yourself is super critical because it's not about everything that you know, and it, it's actually about the people that you have around you. Uh, and so if you have mediocre people, you're mediocre. Uh, and if you have great people, you're great because you can then leverage yourself, you can leverage your team. Uh, it's, you're able to, I try to look at the things that I'm not so great at and I hire for that. I hire things that like, like to feel, fill in the gap to make sure that we have a more well-balanced, um, you know, diverse, creative team so that it's not just, uh, it's not just about me, it's about the whole team and bringing the whole team together. And I think those are things that I would have, um, would have loved to know earlier on. You mentioned earlier, it sounded as if you had some positive experiences uh, collaborating with CEOs along the way. And is there any advice you can give there, perhaps? It seems like uh, you've paired yourself up a number of times in successful situations, or uh, maybe there's, I, I don't have the full picture, but what would you, what would you, can you reflect on that a little bit? When you're a CFO and you're going to step into that role and uh, there's a CEO who perhaps you you've only known briefly. Is there any, any light you can shed on uh, what steps you might want to take to make that successful? Yeah. You know, um, I do think this is such an important piece because um, look, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the, the journey, whether that's IPO or acquisition or fundraising, whatever it happens to be, who are the two people that have to go through all of those things sitting side by side? It's the CEO and the CFO. So you have to be able to, doesn't, like, you have to travel together. You have to sit through meetings and like board meetings, investor meetings. You, you have to be able to um, really, you know, it's a deep relationship that um, I, I would say that the investment in really understanding that is super critical. I'll give you a, a great um history of one like so when i interviewed for dado the young entrepreneur ceo that i met austin mccord he had founded dado when he was 21 
So when I met him, so that's pretty young for a, for a CEO entrepreneur, wicked smart, super smart guy. And he would even say, he's like, we were, I was interviewing, I even remember we're in this like battered old conference room and I'm interviewing with him. And he, he says, he's like, I was a total geek in high school. Um, look, I just like, I love building things and technology. Um, and I need, I need someone that can be my partner and help me. I don't know finance. I don't know. I've never, you know, built a company. Um, one, I loved his honesty. He was super technical. Um, he even referred to himself as, you know, geeky. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Um, I, I lined up those values to my own. I'm, I'm very honest. I'm very straightforward. Uh, and the other thing he said as I went on this journey was um, he said, I, I want to go to dinner with you and I just want to interact with you and I want to see like we could sit down and have a meal together. We could chat. That was, a, that was also something that was very telling to me. Then when we sat down and we had dinner, it wasn't just talking about work. It was actually talking about life and you know a variety of things that um you know that interests both of us and it doesn't mean that you have to have the same interest uh and i ended up traveling extensively with austin and going through a number of things um and i would just say like uh i would definitely want him in my bunker and i would like to think that he'd want me in his bunker and as i gone through my journey like right now i'm at blue core because of Fize, the ceo Yes, the company, yes, the culture, yes, the backing of the, um, the board and the investors and all that stuff. But Fize is who sunk me in. He had a very similar style about honesty, bringing his authentic self to the conversation. And, um, and I value that. And I think you have to be willing to let's sit down and go to dinner or let's understand each other other than the superficial interview of you know like it, it's not an interview it's it's got to be can we get along can can we go through tough times together yep that that chemistry that's necessary exactly for that. so well we're gonna uh ask you to reflect a little bit on the uh, the personal side now which is when we ask you if there's a habit that you have or some part of your daily routine that you've always done maybe not always but maybe you adopted along the way Something that is on the personal side, more or less, but it pays dividends on the professional side by helping you keep on an even keel, whatever it might be, however you'd like to characterize it. Is there something that you do? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, so I didn't have this early in my career. And this is probably the other thing that I would just say as an advice to other professionals, not necessarily just finance professionals. Um, so what, one thing that I do do, uh, and it's actually outside of work is, um, I am an avid horseback rider. Uh, and I picked that up like 10 years ago. Uh, and I did it with my daughter shortly, at, like when she was five, um, I thought I was working, I was working long hours and I thought I need something to do, uh, with my daughter on the weekends that just she and I can enjoy um, together. Uh, and we ended up riding. Um, and why I mention it, because it actually plays into heavily into my professional life. Um, so the thing I say, I'm a way better professional because of the horseback riding. Um, 
it's the one sport in my mind that you cannot be distracted by other things. You're sitting on this very large animal that is, while it is smart in its own right, is not that smart. Um, they're un they can be unpredictable and they can be dangerous. Um, but you have to put a lot of trust and there's a partnership there. So you have to let go all the stress that you had from work and what's going on in your mind and set it aside and focus on what you're doing and focus on your teammate. Because if you don't, you're going to end up on the ground and you're probably going to be hurt. And the other thing is my daughter and I also horse, we show. So we do equestrian events, jumping, etc. So you're judged. And a lot of it's subjective. In my career, it was all about, uh, you know, hey, based on my merit, my performance. Uh, and in this, it's now I have to rely on a team member that uh, is four-legged, furry, and um, as I mentioned, may not have all the, the heavy brain skills coming in. Uh, so again, it's relying on a team member. I'm being judged. Uh, things that would you wouldn't expect do matter. Um, how you look, how you handle things, how you perform. Um, and so uh, it, I know it seems like a funny one, Jack, but uh, I, my, my recommendation would be this. It's not horseback riding because horseback riding is not for everybody. But I do think it's important to have a hobby or something of passion outside of the uh, work environment that does uh, compel you to uh, make a better you, definitely made a better me. Um, it lets you something that relieves your stress, uh, and gives you, uh, enjoyment, personal enjoyment, because it's not, you know, the saying it's not all work. It's also play. I love what I do. And I think that way I can go horseback riding and you get a very happy CFO teammate colleague because I get to enjoy, um, something very personal too. Wow. Interesting. I was almost giving up on this question, uh, thinking I wasn't getting many good responses recently, but I love this response. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, I was reading about a, a not-for-profit recently that brings together veterans uh, that are suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress to work with horses uh, because of uh, as a therapy for removing the stress, for reducing the stress for helping yeah. them. And apparently there, there are studies that show how special the relationship is between humans and, and of course, horses. It's always been known, but uh, there is something stress-reducing about it. So anyway, um, I really appreciate your answer. Yeah, well, sure, here's, a, here's a, just a funny antidote behind that too, Jack. Um, how I ended up horseback riding, I was at work. It was very stressful, um, a lot of chaos going on. Um, and there was a, it was a very stressful environment where I was at. Uh, people were yelling. I looked at my phone uh, and was like, you know what? I just need a break. I pick up my phone and there was a email from Groupon and it was horse, horseback riding lessons. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna buy some horseback riding lessons from this Groupon for my daughter and I to you know, go horseback riding. My husband, he now will tell you that was probably the most expensive Groupon we ever bought. So I bought my horseback ride. It's not like Michelle was some former loved horseback riding. It is, we bought a Groupon, 
now we are three ponies and two horses later and like you could not pry those horses away from me so and we still ride at the same barn <laughs> oh wonderful um we like to ask we're almost up to our final question but we always ask if there's a a book or something that's influenced your thinking doesn't have to be a business book uh but does anything come to mind if we were to ask for a well book? let me put this way like i don't i do a lot of personal reading just to kind of uh should we say again stress relief right there's none that i would say hey like this was super um uh, inspiring or inspiring i like to read uh, a lot of of um you know dystopian future type stuff i think that's just all really interesting um, but what I would say this to kind of pivot the conversation slightly would be um, what I, I think things like podcasts, snippets of information that you can consume. I mean, look, we're in a society that's moving very quickly. There's a lot of data. Um, so I really like the avenues of podcasts, um, being able to, to grab on information. I also use my network pretty heavily. So other colleagues, other people who have been there, done that. So uh, when I lean um, towards something, it would it, it's not it's not like hey Michelle has to come up with all the answers or go go to Google research it or grab a book. I actually um, I I am very fortunate to have um, colleagues that I lean on heavily, and uh, so I have a, a like my personal network on CFOs that have done the IPO route or otherwise. So I lean heavily on them. Not quite the answer down the book side of things. However, if you want to go, however, if you want to go down the dystopian future books, I can discuss them all you want. No, great, uh, great insight into how you gather information. I think um, so many leaders are in flux in terms of where they get their information, how they consume it, looking for ways, what others do, how others do it. We are up to our final question where uh, we ask you to look forward finally. Uh, Michelle, and over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? Yeah, so um, I'll say this, like, I think it's super important that you have a solid foundation. So for me, I got to make sure that that foundation of, um, you know, hey, I got my GLs accurate. I can close the books in a timely way. I got audited financial statements. Those are super important. But as a finance leader, you're not going to get credit for them. So make them happen, get them done. And then it's got, it's important to, to move on to other things. And so for me, looking over the next 12 months, especially in light of COVID, I think is, uh, is paying attention to the capital strategy. So, hey, uh, around cash management, investment, um, what do we need to look at? Like, this is a time, should we look at acquiring a company? or other companies, um, what, what do we want to do with our investments and our cash strategy? So that's, that's one side. I'm going to add to that because I think a lot of times CFOs ten, do tend to look at capital as cash. Uh, I'm one of those CFOs who look at people as a huge asset. Um, I also look after the people function at BlueCore. And I think the people strategy, especially coming through environments like COVID, is going to be extremely important of ensuring to retain, hire the right talent. Um, and especially of looking at remote, what is the, the new office environment look like? 
And then the last thing that I would say that I'm looking at um, is all around the other keyword that I mentioned to you earlier around data. I think data is going to be absolutely essential in helping the company transform strategically uh, how the decisions it's going to make, the avenues it's going to take, supporting its customers. So it's really, you know, double clicking down on the, the data side of things and the analytics, because it's not just about data. What is the data telling us? Uh, what changes do we need to make? What's the story being told? And I, I think it's just going to become increasingly important to help get the company to the next uh, spot in its journey. Michelle McComb, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you so much. I really appreciated this time with you, Jack. Thanks for having me. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.